Hi, it's G3, and this week we are delighted to present a previous episode of Green Marbles that featured Jenna Roach, Weiss's Director of Investor Relations and Marketing. But the timing is not coincidental, as tomorrow, August 26th, is Women's Equality Day. Thanks to a 1973 joint resolution of Congress, Women's Equality Day was established to commemorate August 26, 1920, which marked the day in which Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby quietly signed the recently ratified 19th Amendment in his home without any fanfare that gave American women the right to vote. And in doing so, a movement that had started over a century earlier could finally declare victory. The journey towards equality beyond suffrage has made many strides since that day 103 years ago, but it has been a struggle. For example, it took all the way to 1974 in the enactment of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act before women were able to apply for credit cards and other loans in their own name, regardless of their marital status. And yes, I said 1974, not 1924. And believe it or not, it took all the way until May 12, 1987, before the first co-education class graduated from Columbia. I have two t-shirts older than that. So while women may have made great strides, Weiss believes that it's important to remember that the achievements made by women have been hard fought and have taken way more time than they should have. And the fight for progress continues which is why we wanted to take this week to recognize one of our own formidable women warriors. So please, check important disclosures at the end of the episode and stick around for our re-airing of my discussion with Weiss's Jenna Roach. And with that, welcome. We are recording... I'm very, very excited about today's podcast because we have a new, fresh voice on our podcast today. It is not Jordy. It is not Mike. It is not Lundy. It is Jenna Roach, Director of Investor Relations and Marketing at Weiss, recording today, March 8th, which happens to be International Women's Day. So first off, Jenna Phenomenal to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's great to be here, G3. I want to start with a little bit of background on you, your story. And I know the answers to some of these. However, I don't know the answers to all of these questions. So I am looking forward to hearing them. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Southwest Orlando, Florida, in a town called Windermere. My parents wanted a a safe neighborhood with a good public school system. So they took on debt and bought a house that was one of the least expensive houses in a very nice area. Okay, so that is the classic. You want to buy the the worst house in a nice neighborhood and hope that over time your house goes up in value and you get the benefit of the good public schools and, and all that good stuff, right? Exactly. And what did your folks do for a living? Well, at that time in Orlando, Florida, there were really only two primary industries, and that was Disney and farming. So it's no surprise my mother worked for Disney and my dad sold tractors for a living. And I think it's important to highlight that my dad was a traveling salesman at the beginning. So my mom was really pretty much a single mother for the early part of my childhood. 
How does that work when you're a traveling salesman with tractors? Like I get it for encyclopedias and vacuum cleaners, but he's not like lugging tractors around with them, right? No, no. But you covered a territory and his territory was southeast of the U.S. And so he had to travel to Atlanta and travel to Charlotte and travel all across Florida to sell these tractors. Gotcha. And did you get into tractor selling over the summer or did you choose your mom's path for your summer gigs? I had a variety of jobs, G3. I actually can't remember a time where I wasn't working and Florida doesn't have four seasons. And so I, I didn't have a summer job. I had jobs. <laughs> so for example, I worked in retail stores. I was a caregiver for both the elderly and for children but my primary job, once I could drive a car, was working as a lifeguard for Disney's Typhoon Lagoon water park. A lifeguard at a water park owned by Disney. That's all good. But I hear the words Typhoon Lagoon, and that sounds like kind of dangerous. Like, did you have to be a great swimmer for that? I was a okay swimmer. I think growing up in Florida, you swim to cool off and have a good time. But I did have to practice swimming and a freeze stroke to be eligible to be a lifeguard and actually look over that Typhoon Lagoon wave pool. What is the free stroke? It is the free, free style. style. Gotcha. I was thinking maybe it's, you know, in, in contrast to the expensive stroke, you have the free <laughs> stroke. All right. Well, you know, a couple of people I chatted with ahead of this, including a Mr. Visser, mentioned a couple of the unique accomplishments during your upbringing. You were the valedictorian of your high school, right? Yes. And did you have like a 4.9 out of 4 or something like that? This was actually at the time where the weighted GPA was just getting going. So I definitely had a 4.0 unweighted, but I had some higher number that was weighted. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. I never inhabited that territory, the above 4.0 territory myself. Talk to me about some of the other accomplishments from your childhood that are of note. Well, I think there's three that I would highlight. The first being I was a, a governor all-star, which meant that I was sent to Tallahassee to have lunch with Jeb Bush in his house. I was also selected to represent the state of Florida. There were two of us sent to D.C., to tour Washington, D.C., and I met President Bush at that time. I met Sandra Day O'Connor. I met Colin Powell, and I got a, a whirlwind tour of Washington, D.C. Very cool. Who was your favorite person who you met? I really enjoyed meeting Colin Powell. He had a presence that left an impression on me. Absolutely. Yeah. It's too bad he is no longer with us. And I believe you won something of note as well in your childhood, right? Yes, I won a car. For free. You actually won it? I actually won it. You didn't have to pay like $4,000 for it? Like you won it straight out? Nope. I won it straight out. I won it in a reverse lottery. And the day I won it, I drove off the lot with the car. And I actually drove to Disney immediately after to show my fellow lifeguards why I needed the day off that day. And what is a reverse lottery? It means there were 12 of us who were selected to come down to the car dealership to potentially win this car. And we were, all of our names were in a bowl. And a reverse lottery is you want your name to be the last out of the bowl, not the first. So as 
names were pulled out of the bowl, you walked off the stage. You did not win the car. And my name was the last name never pulled. So it was down to you and one other person. Were you like holding hands like they do with like beauty pageants, like hoping that you would be the, the one? Yes, we were both there. Very nervous. Couldn't believe it. It doesn't really set in until there's three or four of you left that this actually might happen. I have never won anything like a car. Have, have you like, are you like a lucky person? Have you won other big things or was that like the thing? That was a big thing, but I do think that I am fortunate and I, I might have some good luck. Or maybe you make your own luck. That's probably part of it too, G3. All right. Well, I do want to talk a bit about your college and early career, but before we do, I have to mention one more thing about your upbringing. And I don't think it is a coincidence that you are a huge booster of, supporter of, advocate of manatees and you're from Florida. Like, I think that there is a connection there, but I'm wondering if you could just elaborate a little bit more on your manatee thing. Where did it come from? Why are you so enamored by these creatures who, to be honest, I really can't tell the difference between a manatee and a, like a porpoise or whatever they're called too. So if you could explain the difference between a manatee, a porpoise, and maybe a walrus for that matter, that would be great. Oh, well, uh, being into manatees really happened after I left the state of Florida. I care a lot about nature. I care about mindfulness, being calm, being curious, and looking out for others. Manatees are docile, curious creatures. They're very playful and they really represent all those things that I care about. They have no natural predators, which is one of the reasons why they're so fearless and carefree and will approach humans. And I like to gift them to people because, I, number one, it spreads manatee awareness. And I think that's one of the best ways to help protect the manatees. But number two, being in the Northeast, many people don't know what a manatee is. And so I think giving them the gift of a manatee gets them curious. And I think it's also a very playful thing to give away. You know, they were taken off the endangered species list in Florida. I do know that. And I pay attention to that because I think some people are very focused on getting them back on the list. I wish those people luck because otherwise you could just have them poached, right? Hunters or whomever could just poach them. Poach them, but also they often are run over by boats. And so funding and being on the endangered species list can help create better signage and education programs that keep the manatees safe. And also when you find a manatee that needs to be rescued, there is a team of people that require resources and materials and equipment to rescue these manatees and rehabilitate them to then release them back into the wild. Do you have in mind a good website for those people who want to learn more about them? Yes. All right, we'll put that in the show notes for sure. Excellent. All right, well, let's move on. Notwithstanding the fact that, you know, you are a Florida woman through and through, you left the state when it came time for college, given the fact that you were valedictorian, you know, I would imagine you had an embarrassment of options before you, and you chose Wellesley. It's a great school. A lot of amazing people have come out of there, amazing women. But let me ask you, of all the schools that you could have gone to, why did you pick Wellesley? 
Well, the first thing I want to say is that this was my choice. My parents had no influence on my decision. They didn't pay for Wellesley and they didn't give me any money to go to school. All I knew when I was thinking about college was that I wanted to go to a great school in the Northeast. So on my college tour trip, I visited Yale, Harvard, Princeton, and Wellesley. And for me, it was the visit to the Wellesley campus that left an impression on me. And based on the time where I was in my life, it felt like the right place for me and a place where I thought I could grow. One thing to highlight to G3 is that many people in Florida that I had interacted with had never heard of Wellesley. Yeah, I can't imagine it's like a heavily sought after university amongst Floridians. Part of the reason G3, you know, you're smiling, I'm smiling. Part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I wanted to share my story to hopefully inspire and empower other women. And choosing Wellesley was an important decision in my life. And it really marked the beginning of my independence a woman and as an adult. It was not without a certain amount of consideration, though. It couldn't have been, given the fact that, as you said before, your parents didn't help you pay for it. And I did do a little research on it. It is one of the top 20 most expensive universities in the country now, and I'm sure it was back then. And I believe that led to a distinction you have at Wellesley, if you could just share that, I think it would be worthwhile to amplify that point that you just made. Absolutely. Well, my parents did not have a lot of disposable income and they were not paying for my college education. The financial aid office at Wellesley did not like that. And they told me my parents should be paying for it. Is that because they assessed that your parents had some capability of paying? I'm not sure exactly what Wellesley thought, but they told me my parents should be paying for it. And so I was stuck in the middle. At the end of the day, my parents weren't paying for it. So I do remember sitting in the financial aid office, filling out the paperwork and taking on these loans. And the person in the financial aid office told me that I would be graduating with the most student loan debt in the history of the college. And I don't know if that statement is true or if it was meant to scare me, but it left an impression on me. Well, whether it was true or not, a statement like that is at least directionally commenting on the fact that you were going to have more debt than just about all of the other women who were also attending Wellesley. So did you think twice about whether or not it made sense to do that after hearing a statement like that? I didn't think about it. I mean, I was a teenager at the time filling out this paperwork. Getting into Wellesley was the biggest opportunity for me. And I wasn't going to let money keep me from changing my life. Do you feel like the process in which you sort of ultimately made that decision, being told what you were told at the tender age of 18, I'm assuming you were 18, Yes. Do you think that process was a good one? I wouldn't change what I did. Wellesley changed the trajectory of me as a human and for my life. 
So I didn't think a lot about it. I actually don't think I had a choice in the matter. If I wanted to go to Wellesley, this is what I had to do. And I was going to find a way to do it the best that I could. So you were looking at total debt of probably north of 200000 when you went there as you signed those papers, right? It was something like that. I had some scholarships, you know, but nothing even close to what the order of magnitude of the debt was. And back then, interest rates were high. So it was compounding. Well, they're getting higher now again, but I hear what you're saying. And did you say to yourself, okay, I'm taking on this very high amount of debt. I am going to have to get a high paying job at a midtown New York based hedge fund as a result. Were you thinking along those lines? No, no, I was not thinking past, you know, the first year, sophomore year, junior year. I really didn't start thinking about the career until junior year and what that path would look like. But what I always told myself is high school, get good grades, go to a good college and college do well, go to a good school, you'll get a good job. And that's what I thought my path would look like. And that's how it played out. Okay. But you knew that you were not going to become a teach for America, you know, teacher or anything like that upon having this much debt. So you knew that you were setting down a pathway as a result of taking on this debt. Yes. I knew I needed a good job at graduation, but I didn't necessarily know what a good job looked like or what would make me happy in a job. So given all this pressure that many other women who were at Wellesley didn't have, right? I would imagine that you didn't play any sports. You were strictly focused in on your academics, correct? No, G3. I also played sports. So I was a, a science major, which requires a lot of time in the lab. And I was also on the college traveling Wellesley golf team all four years. Yeah, I knew that. I was just teeing you up. It's really cool, though. You, well, tell the story. Like, you weren't a lifetime golfer when you ultimately got on the team, correct? Correct. I started playing golf ninth grade, freshman year of high school. And I played all four years in high school. And then when I got to Wellesley, I played all four years at Wellesley. But you clearly had natural ability. Otherwise, you would never have been in a position where, after having just started the sport four years earlier, you were... and. I don't know if Wellesley is a golf powerhouse. I'm guessing maybe not. But nevertheless, that is still very impressive. Yes. I was always an athlete. And you are correct, G3. Wellesley is a Division three school. So it's not D1. And I wasn't a particularly good golfer. Part of the reason I was able to make the team in high school and in college is because there weren't many female golfers. But every year that I played, I got better. Golf, I think, is a, a game of hours and an experience. So the more I played, the better I got. But today, I only play once or twice a year. And for those of you listening who play golf and do scrambles and best ball, I'd like to highlight that I hit it pretty far, typically in the fairway, and I get to play from the ladies' tees. So I tend to be an asset in a, a best ball tournament. So I've won a few tournaments with my team in the past. So I'm definitely open to others who are looking for a, a player. All right. 
as duly noted. All right. Well, in addition to golf, you used Wellesley to nurture your interest in science and I believe biochemistry in particular. That is correct. Okay. So you majored in biochem and when you graduated, can you talk about your first job and why you chose and how you wound up where you did? Yes. Well, the reason I came to Wall Street was because I wanted to be the CEO of Merck, not Roche Pharmaceuticals G3, Merck. And the reason I was very interested in Merck at the time was in June of 06, the FDA had approved the vaccine Gardasil, which was female-focused and at the time very cutting-edge, and I wanted to be part of the action. Naturally, as a biochem major, I didn't know what business was. And I'm using business in quotes because I didn't have business experience. And my genetics professor at Wellesley told me if I wanted to learn business, the fastest way would be to go to Wall Street. So I did the interview process and I accepted an offer at Morgan Stanley in the investment banking healthcare team. And going to Morgan Stanley was an experience and there were a lot of other economics and finance majors from other Ivy League schools. So I was a bit of fish out of water and I had to learn a lot from my peers. It is interesting, though, that you wanted to ultimately climb the ranks to the highest echelon for a major pharmaceuticals company. I mean, did Merck or Pfizer or any of the Glaxo, any, any of the Bristol Myers, did any of these companies recruit on campus? And were you tempted to just say, well, I want to get into the management training program at Merck? No, they did not come to Wellesley to recruit. At the time, there weren't many science majors coming out of Wellesley. So I was fortunate that the banks did come and recruit to Wellesley. I see. Okay, so you started off at Morgan Stanley. The fastest way to learn business was to go to Wall Street. And I know to this day, I have heard, I don't know if I've ever actually heard you say it, you have a particular formula in mind that still has relevance. Can you talk about that formula? The formula is PV equals NRT. And I imagine a lot of people don't know what this is. So let me just explain it. This equation represents the relationship between pressure, volume, the amount of gas, that's the N, and temperature. And it's known as the ideal gas law. For me, though, this equation means balance. Now that I manage people, I have to pay attention and monitor the pressure, the volume of work. And if you apply too much pressure on one side, it pops up somewhere else. And so I have to think a lot about those consequences as a manager. And PV equals NRT comes up consistently throughout my day in my life. That's great. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reflect on that. Thank you. All right. So you were at Morgan Stanley. You ultimately left there after you completed your program. What was your thinking then? Talk to me about when you left Morgan Stanley, where was your head at? Did you now want to potentially go and work at a major pharmaceuticals company? What was going on in your mind? Well, when I left Morgan Stanley, it was in 2009. And so we had just survived the great financial crisis. 
And at that point in time, too, I realized I did not want to be the CEO of Merck. (laughs) Okay. So a revelation. (laughs) Yes. And I think it was safe to say I was pretty lost at this time as a 24-year-old. I mean, here I was, a biochemist. I did banking. I survived the crisis. I moved to a hedge fund. And then shortly thereafter, it was under investigation. I got married. I got divorced. Things were moving very quickly in my early 20s. And I didn't have a lot of mentors. At this point, the good news was I was independent from my parents. The bad news was they couldn't give me career advice. When I told my father, a tractor salesman, that I was going into banking, he thought I was going to be a bank teller. (laughs) So at this point, I think it's fair to say I was a little lost. I was a little bored. And then an opportunity at Weiss presented itself. And what was attractive to me at the time was less about Weiss and more about the fact that it was a woman running the investor relations and marketing team. And part of me thinks that it was probably that Wellesley in me that wanted to work for a woman and have a female guide me and train me so that I could learn from. So that was the reason I was very interested in Weiss at the beginning and took the job. Before we talk a bit more about that, I just want to note, you were a banker, you were doing DCFs and valuations and spreading comps and all the stuff that a young banker does. You left there and then ultimately found this opportunity after stopping off at another hedge fund to go to Weiss, but it was in a marketing and IR role, which there doesn't appear to have been anything about your background up to that point to suggest an interest in marketing and IR. So talk to me about that change. I think I was originally hired for marketing and IR because I had a skill set. I had that banking training and background, and I could work hard, put in the long hours and figure things out. And the thing about hedge funds and marketing and IR, the math is not too complicated. It's plus, minus, multiply, divide. And so I think that they brought me in for that basic skill set. But I also had the training of my father, who was a salesman. And so I think it was a natural transition for me, even though at the time, I don't think I was very conscious of that. I see. So you weren't like, oh, my gosh, am I going to be good at this role? You sort of had a comfort after having witnessed your dad and maybe helping him throughout your life to know that you would if you worked hard, like everything else you've done, you'd be able to figure it out. I would be able to figure it out. And you did figure it out. But before you figured it out, you had to actually get hired. And, you know, Jordy is pretty famous for, I think, his unique interviewing style. If you could describe that final interview you had with Jordy before he ultimately extended you the offer. Yes. And G3, you are correct. This was not a typical interview. And I didn't know this when I was being interviewed at the time. So I only learned this after I was hired. But I think it's important to mention that Jordy's interviews are not normal. He is looking to evaluate IQ, EQ, AQ. 
And I think in my interview, it came across my IQ, but he was more interested in understanding my AQ and making sure that I had overcome adversity and that there was some grit and resilience there. Let's just stop here. IQ, we all know what that is. AQ, adversity quotient. You overcame something that was rough. Yes. Okay. And EQ? Emotional. Exactly. Okay. All right. So he focused in on the AQ and he wanted to make sure you overcame adversity. He asked you a question, present me with a scenario and you had to then dig deep and come up with something that was real that could convince him that you knew how to face all of the slings and arrows that would be thrown your way. Absolutely. And that's not something that you're typically prepared for in an interview. You're not putting your AQ on your resume. So it was a very honest conversation that we had. Well, getting Jordied, right, in the interviewing process, I've often thought, even for people who don't get the job, they're probably better off for having done so. Any kind of, you know, words of wisdom as it relates to how you, as a woman, without experience in marketing and and IR, how do you get a job in this kind of role at a firm that obviously has a lot of people to choose from? Yes. So what I was saying before G3 is that I only learned this after, but this goes back to PV equals NRT. I see now when he was talking to me about AQ that he was evaluating how I could complement the Weiss team and the bigger picture, meaning the direction of the firm. And if I could share a piece of advice, you know, when you're interviewing with a firm, I would ask about this. How am I going to fit on the team? Where do I fit in the organization, the vision of the firm? It's important to understand this because it leads back to how you're going to grow and develop as a person in that firm. And so I see now that that's what Jordy was trying to figure out during our interview process. And I guess once I had passed that piece of the puzzle, one of the things that he asked me that I really caught me off guard was what is going to make me happy at Weiss and keep me here? He told me that people typically value one of three things, money, learning, or the environment. And I remember saying to him, I just don't want to get bored. And he promised me I would never be bored, and he has kept that promise. If anything, I'm the opposite of bored here. (laughs) What is the opposite of bored? I guess stimulated all the time or something good, I guess. Yes, very busy. All right. Well, you've been at the firm now for eight years. You are a partner. You ultimately ascended to the role that you have now, although that was a promotion when your boss at the time left. What are some of your proudest accomplishments of your time at the firm? Well, putting aside the moving up the ladder and making partner and earning the trust of clients, I'm most proud of learning more about IQ, EQ, AQ. I mean, I work at a firm where the person running the firm gave me a book by Brene Brown, which led to downstream effects and me going to the Dale Carnegie School. I was brought up a highly competitive person and I was taught not to be vulnerable. I viewed vulnerability as a weakness 
And as a result of that, I didn't have strong relationships or friendships that seemed to be normal, particularly in our industry. Do you think you were conditioned not to show vulnerability because as a woman, if you are deemed to be vulnerable, that will be a net negative in your career progression? Was that the thinking that you felt like you needed to overcome? I felt like I was trained to achieve, be competitive, and go for it. And so my AQ was there, my IQ was there, but I didn't have those close friendships and relationships. That goes, I didn't have strong mentors. And I think developing that EQ really changed the trajectory of me, less of a machine and more of a human. So I gather that that has also had an impact on your personal life, right? Absolutely. Come on, let's hear some more. <laughs> it, it's had an impact on me both professionally and personally. I've found now that I have deeper relationships. I listen more and I care more. And I found that developing EQ, I have better relationships even with my family now. And so in, in a notable way, your work life has actually helped your personal life because oftentimes it goes in the other direction. Absolutely, G3. That's a very astute point you just made. Well, I think you have some other good insights that I'd like to get to here, particularly because, you know, this is a, an important month for women everywhere. Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to aspiring women on Wall Street or who want to come to Wall Street who are just starting out their careers? At the very beginning of my career on Wall Street, everyone always said you have to get a mentor. When you're looking for a mentor, you want to find a person who has wisdom and who will be genuinely honest with you about your strengths and your weaknesses. At the end of the day, you will have to be the person that does the work to improve on those things. But finding the person to give you that feedback is really valuable. So without having had the benefit of a couple of good mentors, do you think you would have found a way to get to where you are now or were they critical in helping you achieve the success you've achieved? I think they accelerate the path and the process. I think you can figure all of those things out and it can take longer and you can learn the hard way by making mistakes. But if you have a mentor point out to you what you're not so good at and what you can work on and also how to maximize your winning patterns and your strengths, I think you can get there faster. I think I agree with that. You know, I never had a mentor. So I have taken to this idea that I've mentored myself. And I'd like to think that self-awareness is the thing you need to focus in on when you don't have a mentor. Because as you said before, you know, you want people who will be there to tell you the truth and to tell you when you've messed up and to tell you when you've done a great job. But if you don't have that person and you want to get ahead, you just kind of have to do it yourself, I guess, right? Yes, you have to do the hard work yourself and look within. Well, speaking of looking within, in addition to working very hard at your day job and helping to save the manatees, I am aware of the fact that you have a significant mindfulness practice that is very important to you 
Talk about that, where it shows up in your life and how it started. You bet. Well, I'll start it off with I care a lot about health. It started with my golf coach in college, and he really led me to a path of exercise, yoga, visualization, meditation. But I've taken that to the next level. I have an aura ring now, and G3, I know <laughs> you're wearing yours too. Absolutely. I do breathing exercises. I focus on my sleep. I think about eating healthfully. And I care a lot about mindfulness. And that really started about 10 years ago when I started getting into the science behind meditation and mindfulness and what's happening in your brain. You mentioned you first got into mindfulness courtesy of your golf coach. Let me ask you this. What is your handicap if you had to say what it is right now? I think it's fair to say a 12. Okay, you're a 12. If you had a different golf coach and you were never exposed to mindfulness or you never got into it, what would your handicap be? I have no idea. If you had to guess, how many strokes does the mindfulness help you with shaving? I think mindfulness definitely shaves off your handicap strokes for sure. I'm going to put you down as four. <laughs> I think you're four strokes better as a result of it. Is that fair? I think that's fair. All right. Okay. So let's talk about paying it forward. I know that you are forever grateful to George and Jordy for helping you in many ways, but I am especially interested in how you have gone about managing your own money, how they helped and how you dealt with all of that debt you had accumulated. So in that order, let's talk first about how George and Jordy have helped you think about your own investment decisions. Coming to Weiss and being surrounded by portfolio managers and successful finance professionals, I knew they had a lot of knowledge. And I also knew I had recently finished paying off my student loans. So I was finally starting to accumulate savings. So 15 years after you were graduated, you finally got rid of that mountain of debt. Yes, actually, G3, I finished it in less than five years. You paid off 200 grand of debt in less than five years. I don't remember the exact number of debt because it was a scary number that fluctuated every month with the interest accumulating. But I had paid all of it off in less than five years. So you must have been very focused in on that. Even before you got to Weiss, you were laser focused on getting rid of that debt. Absolutely. I led a very careful life and I learned to spread a dollar. And it helped being in investment banking and working really hard. There wasn't a lot of opportunity to go out and spend. And I kept spreadsheets and I was vigilant about paying off the debt. And if you worked late at night, you could get the free food. I remember when I was at Cowan, I could get the free food if, you know, it was after eight o'clock or something yes. like that. Right? Yes. If you were working late, the firm subsidized your meal and you could make that dinner also extend into the next day's lunch. That's right. All right. So you got to Weiss, you were now ready to go on offense. What did George and Jordy help you do? I was very grateful that George, Jordy, several of the portfolio managers sat me down and they taught me 
and educated me on things that I could consider. And so I started investing my savings and it really empowered me to take control of my finances. And do you provide a similar type of guidance to the young professionals at the firm today? I encourage all the young professionals at Weiss to talk to the folks at Weiss with wisdom on managing their life, whether that be their savings and investing, whether that be something as simple as their 401k at Weiss or a flexible spending account or thinking about basic life management. Someone had to sit me down and talk to me about that. And so I tried to make sure that I'm open for people to walk into my door and ask me these, what may seem like silly questions or simple questions, but they are important decisions. And I like to be there to be helpful. Has Jordy also given you guidance on how to bet the ponies? I have asked Jordy how I might be betting on the Kentucky Derby this year. And it sounds like it's easier than ever to bet on a horse. Well, it may be easier than ever, but it's not easy. All right. Well, kidding aside, it's great that you do that. And I just, I can't get over this debt thing. I have to ask you a couple more questions on it. Sure. So I did look up the full tuition at Wellesley when you were there started out at $36,000. Today, it's over 80000 So college tuition has gone up dramatically faster than inflation, even though inflation is certainly picking up. Let me just ask you, though, like, it's clear that the amount of debt you took on is something where you got this amazing, life-changing education, and so it was worth it. Um, but if all the other factors involving your situation were constant, other than you were graduating now, you would probably be graduating with about $500,000 worth of debt. And the question I would ask you is, would you do that today? And this is my way of saying, having a great school on your resume certainly helps you deal your way into Wall Street, but it comes at the cost of a massive amount of debt. Do you ever say to yourself, gee, thank God I got to Wellesley when I did because 500K would be a bridge too far? If I had to do it all over again, G3, I would do it again. I came from a small town in Florida and going to Wellesley changed the trajectory of my life. And it is not comfortable to take on that much debt. But if you are committed to seeing it through, then I think you should do it. For me, that was my strategy. I wanted to change my life. And you accomplished that goal. Yes. Now I live in New York City with a job and I have no more debt. Well, I know that you feel a sense of gratitude for your accomplishments. You like to talk about gratitude. You have a gratitude practice as part of your mindfulness. What other things outside of Weiss do you do to show your gratitude? The easiest thing that I do is I keep a gratitude diary. And in addition to manatees, this is something I often give to people. And my team knows that I keep a gratitude diary. The dates that they're hired are in my gratitude diary. So it's fun to look back and see 
you know, what I was grateful for one year or two years back. So I think a gratitude diary is very simple and easy, but it's a commitment. I do write in it one or two lines every day. But I think you can also practice gratitude by helping others. I find on days when I'm feeling less grateful about something or a situation, the key for me has been going to help others. It sounds like it's penetrated your life both outside of Weiss and at Weiss. And, you know, we were talking before we started recording about the challenges for women to make it in the very competitive world of hedge funds and Wall Street and all that good stuff. Sounds like to me that your gratitude practice has changed the way you have gone about approaching your career. Could you end by talking a little bit about that? Yes. (laughs) Tell me again what you want to talk about, G3. (laughs) Well, there is a stereotype, right? There is this school of thought that in order for a woman to make it on Wall Street at a hedge fund where there are all these very, very smart, very competitive people, you can't behave in ways that might come naturally to you, that you have to be rougher and meaner and tougher than the men. What would you say to that? I'll bring it back to PV equals NRT. You need to be strong. You need to know whatever it is that you're bringing to the table inside and out. But I also think bringing in that softness, that emotional intelligence, that vulnerability has been key to my success. It's been key to managing my team. It's been key to helping others in the firm grow and develop. And it can't always be about the hard. You also need to have some balance with the soft. And if I were to look back on the first half of my career, it was all hard, meaning not a lot of softness or finesse to it. In terms of you. In terms of me. Yes. Power, fire, all the way. Coming to Weiss, developing my emotional intelligence, learning to be vulnerable, has helped balance out that fire with a little bit of water, a little bit of air, and changed my path. And I think it's one of the reasons why I've been successful here. Jenna Roach, thanks for coming on Green Marbles. Thanks for having me here, G3. Happy International Women's Day. Thank you. Alrighty. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast 
is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.